Before we get started today, I want to ask you a quick question. Are you looking to find more freedom and flexibility in your life with type 1 diabetes? Are you looking to increase your confidence and decrease your stress? If so, I want to invite you to join the Diabetes Psychologist membership. When you join, you'll get weekly sessions with me where we'll have master classes, diabetes and mental health question and answer sessions, and hot seat coaching sessions. You'll also get monthly behavioral challenges, a comprehensive resource library, and a private Facebook community. To learn more, go to thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash membership. That's thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash membership. And I can't wait for you to become a part of the Diabetes Psychologist membership community. And now, on to this episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. Welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman, and I invite you to join us as we talk candidly about the emotional challenges of living with type 1 diabetes. We'll give you actionable strategies to help you face these challenges head on, reduce your stress, and most importantly, live a full life without letting diabetes get in the way. Hey there, welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman. Most of my episodes focus on adults with type 1 diabetes, but I know that I have a lot of listeners who are teens with diabetes or parents of teens with diabetes, and I want to make sure that I address your issues as well. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Dr. Kenneth Gorfinkel. Dr. Ken is a diabetes psychologist who specializes in working with teens and parents around some of the challenges that come with having a teen with diabetes. The teens are challenging. Teens want independence. Their parents want the best for them. And sometimes those things collide, especially when diabetes is in the mix. In this conversation, Dr. Ken and I talk about some ways that parents and teens can work together to make sure the teens can live full and independent lives and the parents can be assured that they're safe. And be sure to listen until the end of this episode where I give my biggest tip on how parents and teens can best communicate around the highs and lows of type 1 diabetes. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Ken. Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And so am I, Mark. I'm happy to be here. Great. So to start off, tell me about your background and tell us about how you became interested in working with people with type 1 diabetes. So I got started uh, in my first role as a clinical psychologist early in my graduate school career, working with children with cancer at a cancer hospital here in New York at Sloan Kettering. And then once I defended my thesis, I took a faculty position at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital at Columbia Presbyterian here in New York. And one of my main roles was uh, as a part of the consult liaison psychiatry team, where we went to the bedside of sick children in the children's hospital. And we were consulted by their doctors to help understand their needs, you know, as they were contending with hospitalization for any kind of significant medical condition. And uh, that included everything from, in those days, HIV, children, uh, uh, organ transplant, cancer, of course, which I was experienced with. And then we had a, a good number of kids who were coming into the hospital in DKA, 
you know, uh, they were what we called frequent flyers, kids who would come again and again in DKA. And our role was to uh, go to the bedside, me as a psychologist, and I was supervising and training young training psychiatrists on how to talk to sick kids at the bedside, how to relate to them, how to chat them up, play, be playful, connect with them, and then find out what the story was of why they were here and what we could do for them and how we could help them. Okay. And then that morphed into working um, in a diabetes center. Yes. So that, that, that went on for maybe close to 20 years until uh, the funding uh, petered out in the psychiatry service. And uh, I'd been courted by the Naomi Berry Diabetes Center right across the street, which had been only founded in recent years uh, by a Dr. Robin Goland. She's uh, the endocrinologist who, who runs the center and founded the center under uh, Russ Berry, uh, his, his donated money because he had uh, contended with diabetes in his family and he donated many millions of dollars to build a state-of-the-art diabetes center here in New York. So she'd been courting me over the years to come across the street and join her faculty. And literally the day that I ran out of funding in psychiatry, I walked across the street. I was unemployed for about an hour and a half and then rehired. <laughs> and what was your job at the Naomi Diabetes Center? So I was there uh, attending psychologist and I was able to evaluate newly diagnosed adults and children with both type one and type two, uh, work with uh, their families, with their spouses, um, including with their, with their uh, other attending physicians from other specialties to help understand how to best uh, usher them into the world of diabetes if they were newly diagnosed or to help them cope with it if they were having trouble in some way. We had a, a full service clinic there, which included an ophthalmologist to help take care of their vision issues. We had, of course, endocrinologists, diabetes educators, nutritionists, and we had a full functioning research laboratory uh, where where um, basic bench research was going on uh, to learn how to understand diabetes and how perhaps to uh, someday prevent it or control it better or or do something to, to change the narrative about diabetes. I so wish that they had psychologists like you in every single diabetes clinic of the country. How would that be a game changer for everyone with diabetes to be able to have access to that at diagnosis and beyond? It would. You know, I've met some of the psychologists at the Jocelyn Clinic in Boston, and they're famous for being very strong on psychology. But it's it's something that's very difficult to make happen for economic and insurance and finance reasons. It's hard for places to get funding to support mental health, even though it's we you and I know that it's really central to the quality of care. Yeah. The reason I want to have you on the podcast today is because you have expertise in working with teenagers and their parents and even children with diabetes. And that's not something that I have a lot of experience with. And that's something we talk a lot about in the podcast. So want to pick your brain and get some tips and some insight from you about how parents of teens, how parents of children, as well as how teens can best deal with some of the psychosocial challenges of diabetes. So um, do you have any thoughts to start off our conversation with on that? Yeah, I think the, the one way to start off is that I, I really like to, when I meet a new family, 
talk to the main players in the family, even siblings, but certainly the parents and, and certainly the, the young child or adolescent who's, who's dealing with taking care of himself or learning to. Uh, and I like to find out what the story was around their original diagnosis. And there's a difference. We had kids who were diagnosed at 11 months and then other kids who were diagnosed on the day they were going off to college and everything in between. And so the story of when and how makes a difference. And every story is unique and different. Many of them are smooth as silk and seamless. And one day they were, you know, in honeymoon. And the next day they were taking care of their own insulin without any problems. In other cases, it's really a, a terrible crisis with a DKA, a hospitalization, intensive care unit, severe illness fear and trembling in the family and so on and so on. And so the, that, that narrative, that story is really important to understand how the family uh, copes with that new news. Families, as you probably know, remember the day they put it on their calendar, the day that their child was diagnosed. And, you know, that's their diabetes birthday. And I think most people with diabetes can say what that date was. And they can often recount how that day went in very fine detail. And yeah. if, if it was difficult in some ways, it often involved uh, uh, challenges in trusting the medical message of, you know, of, of being disappointed in the way they were spoken to, or um, if too much fear was instilled in them when it was not necessary to do that, or strange messaging about what nutrition issues there were going to be, or what your life expectancy was going to be. And all these stories, of course, also varied with the era in which the person was diagnosed. So the earliest diagnosis that I dealt with was a person who was diagnosed, I think, in the 19, early 1960s. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was a, a real veteran and uh, could tell stories about what it was like to have diabetes back then and what he was told and how he had to manage his blood sugar back then and how, how it's changed and how he's learned all the technology since then. And this young, this, this man who's now older, he also happens to have a daughter who, uh, while he was in treatment with me, he was contending with a daughter with type one as well. And so we, and she was our patient at the diabetes center as well. So we were able to really understand a multi-generational experience of life with diabetes. Yeah. Those stories we had diagnosis, both the trauma of diagnosis and what actually happens going to the hospital, being in the ICU, and then the stories that kind of come along with that and what the meaning that you make of that, the messages you get are so powerful. And they yeah. really set people off on a trajectory, and especially families. You know, you have parents hearing these stories, and their their little children hearing these stories, and teens hearing these stories, and that can have a big impact on mental health. Yes, and even bringing it down to today, in the last two years during the COVID epidemic, we hear a lot of um, vague public health messaging about the risk factors around diabetes if you get COVID. And so people whose children get diagnosed or become themselves diagnosed have a heightened sense of fear and con concern and, and anxiety about what that means for them in terms of their vulnerability to infection and, uh, and coronavirus and so on. And there are many examples of that going all the way back into years and years ago, where it just you change the narrative, different fears bring up are brought up. One example would be um, not an unusual one. Um, a teenager would be diagnosed with uh, type two diabetes, uh, 
um, and would be contending with significant nutritional problems and weight problems. And maybe they were a candidate for uh, gastric surgery to reduce their obesity problem. And on the day that they're diagnosed, they come into me in tears, not because they have diabetes, but because their dad had been a double amputee for diabetes and had died young and had been in agony in, the, in his final years. And this is a 15 year old I'm talking about. And so that's the narrative that we have to contend with. Diabetes itself is the last thing on the table. It's really about the family drama. Yeah. So speaking of the family dynamics, what are the biggest family dynamics challenges you see in families who have a teenager with type one diabetes? So the biggest uh, issues have to do with what you would consider normal development challenges, which involve developing an independent identity from the family, um, developing their own social life and community life outside of the home, developing a sense of their own values and their own interests that may or may not be consistent with their parents. Sometimes that it comes in a form of rebellion and other times it comes in trying to please their parents. But often teenagers grow up with um, issues and values that are in some way in response to the family that they grew up in. So one of the issues that we talk a lot about uh, in the context of type one is how does the responsibility for the child's self-care shift from the parent being the primary responsible character for taking care of making sure the child's got his or her uh, insulin and equipment and all those things. And how, how does it shift from the parents over to the child in the years, say through middle school and high school up until college? And there is a wide variation of how that happens. We get some families who have encouraged independence from even late elementary school where kids are functioning quite beautifully on their own with only small tweaks from their parents on, on coaching them on, on ways to stay on top of things, all the way to kids who go to college who have never ordered their own equipment, never you know communicated with a pharmacy, never even measured their own insulin. Had, you know, they certainly had checked their own blood sugar, but they hadn't really understood the ins and outs of the details of what management meant. And if they, if they go that far without learning those things, then it's a shock when they finally move away from home. And, and I've seen all too many uh, college freshmen go to college and then have to come home after being hospitalized while in, in college, unable to take care of themselves. Yeah, and I think that that's a big challenge. It's a challenge on both sides because of what I've seen in the few teenagers that I've worked with is you have some people who, some teens who want to be independent. And so yeah. they, they grasp that independence and their parents want to pull that back because they have that, because their parents have anxiety around letting their child be too independent. But on the other hand, you have parents who want their child to be independent and the child kind of puts their hands up in the air and says, no, you take care of me. Yes, Exactly. So the dynamic that I talk about a lot that families find helpful is the, the contrast or the, the comparison between worrying about your teenage child and caring for your teenage child. Mm -hmm. And a, a well-known family therapist once told me that worry in families can be experienced as an act of hostility. Okay. See, because... If you are my mother and it's cold outside and I'm 18 years old and you tell me, Ken, it's cold outside, wear a sweater. 
I'm going to say, mom, I, I know whether I need a sweater or not. I don't need you to tell me that. <laughs> and the same thing would go with a million issues around diabetes care, of course, I'm using a silly example. And so when we talk about worry, if I'm the parent and I worry about my child uh, having a low or, or having a high A1C or not taking uh, close care of, of, their, of their nutrition or their, or their health management, that worry can turn into over control of checking on the child too much, calling them every day. What's your blood sugar? How are you doing? You know, are you, are you taking your insulin? Are you measuring your calorie, your, your carbs and all those things? Kids really know how to do that quite young. They're much more competent at it than their parents often give them credit for. Uh, and yet parents tell me, well, I'm the parent. How, how can you tell me to stop worrying? And so what I say is that, well, you may not be able to stop worrying inside, but how you express it, you can express it in the terms of care and love and not worry because your child is not going to hear the worry in a way that you want them to hear it. They're going to hear it as control. Mom or dad, you're trying to control me and tell me what to do because you don't trust me. You don't think I can do it myself. And the problem with that is that the parents will tell me, and maybe they've told you that, well, this is not you know, child's play. This is a really serious thing. If my child makes a big mistake, it could be curtains for that child. It could have dire consequences. So don't tell me not to worry. And you can go online and hear disaster stories. And, and uh, so I have to worry. And so that's the, that's the back and forth that we have in the therapeutic engagement, you know, of trying to modify the, the worry and shift it over to care and to be able to say, you know, Johnny, I really care for, for you. I love you. I want you to be happy. I want you to be healthy. I want you to do this as much as you can on your own. I want to be able to trust that you're doing that and that you're motivated to do that. And if you need help with that, I need you to ask me or find a way to get help, maybe from a psychologist, maybe from your endocrinologist or from a friend or from a nurse at school if you're in college, but from somebody, don't try to necessarily do it alone if you need help. I had an episode recently on this podcast around being willing to fail with diabetes and yeah. not fail in a way that's going to hurt anybody or that you're going to end up in the hospital, but being right. able to fail and take, take risks and experiment. And it, what, you're, what you're saying is exactly that. It's both allowing the child to go out there and fail, just like you allow the child to go out there and ride his bike and potentially fall over, as well as allowing the parent to allow their child to fail. It's difficult, yeah. but it's critical. It is. I'm working with a young man who doesn't have diabetes, who's accepted to an Ivy League school. He's a super, super student, talented musician, but his parents help him with every single homework assignment, even into his senior year, because they don't want him to fail. It's the yeah. same problem. Failure is such a critical part of development. And I, I actually very much value when I fail right now because it teaches me so much about myself and about how to do better next time. Right. So the other dynamic that I, I get involved with often with teenagers it has to, again, has to do with values. Parents want to raise an upstanding child with good values and, and uh, who, who do the right thing by their, by their community, by themselves, in school, with their teachers. And when the parent becomes too worried and too controlling, what often happens, especially in ninth, 10th and 11th graders, is that when they ask them, have you checked your blood sugar? Have you been taking care of yourself? They tell white lies or they tell 
big lies and they say yes when the answer was no. And parents, when they find out, because they inevitably, you know, the child comes back from an endo appointment and their A1C is risen four points or something like that. And they say, well, he was lying. I've raised a, a, a compulsive liar, haven't I? And, and, I, and of course I say, absolutely not, but let's think about why your son or daughter needs to keep this information from you and what's going on here that, you know, they need to do that. Maybe there's a good reason. Maybe we can all work out a way either that you understand that he's taking care of it without you and doesn't need you to know at all, or maybe he wants you to know, but he doesn't want you to do things with that knowledge that are, that are a problem for him or her. I always want to make sure that my podcasts are actionable. And so I want to ask you, if you were to give some advice to parents of teens or children with diabetes to set them up for success emotionally and with their diabetes management, what advice would you give them? I would have them, especially on the, on the verge of going away, say to overnight camp or to freshman year of college, or even to a sleepover, because that's often the first time that they, that they encounter these issues is to write a letter to their parents on paper um, or an email if, if it's their modern people uh, in which they lay out what they feel their responsibilities are to take care of themselves and lay out a commitment on wh- how they, how they plan to fulfill that commitment. And so is that, is, is that most valuable for the parent or for the child? I think for both, okay. because it lays it out in the open and it's, it becomes a vehicle for a conversation that sometimes happens in the therapy consultation room. Sometimes it just happens all, all, all alone with them at home. Um, but it becomes uh, the beginning of a set of emotional contracts between parent and child that they then can kind of use and carry forward to gradually adjust their expectations and their knowledge and understanding of what their developing child can and can't do and what they need and what they don't need. You know, they may say, mom, I really don't want you to ask me how I'm doing when you call me on Sunday nights. You know, ask me how my math exam went, but don't ask me what my blood sugar is. What I'm hearing you say, the two big takeaways, is communication and being able to communicate openly yeah. and also and also appropriate boundaries to be able to know what it, what where's the line that you draw with nagging with asking questions and with giving information that's right and with that goes a conversation with the adolescent to teach them about boundaries and about i do a lot of talking with teenagers um, clarifying for them how hard it is for their parents and getting them to understand empathically what it is their parents are going through and puzzle out together. How can we help your parents feel better? It's really not your job to fix their anxiety. They're gonna be anxious if they're gonna be anxious, right? But you can play a role in, in, in for yourself in keeping them off your back in a controlling, annoying way. Because what the teenagers are going to tell me is, oh, my dad or my mom, they're annoying me because they pester me too often about worry. This is probably a whole nother podcast episode that we could have talking about parents and teens and technology, especially CGM and sharing data. Yes. One piece of advice that I give to people 
who I see who have this challenge with their parents texting them and saying, your blood sugar is high. What are you doing about it? I suggest to their parents, instead of sending those messages with words, send them with emojis. So have a code like balloons or butterflies. Whenever the team gets a text with an emoji of a balloon or a butterfly or whatever you have, they know what it means, but it's not as emotionally charged as why haven't you done this? And it doesn't feel like you're being attacked. It just feels like someone's checking with you and you're talking about butterflies. And I found it to be very effective. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. And I would put that in a, in a context of a developmental process whereby the, they need that contact more in the beginning and very gradually fade it out. I work with a 30-year-old young man whose father's a physician, and he shares the data with his father in real time, you know, on his, on his CGM. And he's only recently finally understood that it's not helping him feel good about himself to have his father metaphorically a thousand miles away looking over his shoulder. Well, Ken, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really helpful. And I know it's been helpful for my listeners. So I will make sure that I put your information in the show notes so people can look you up and get a hold of you if they're interested in chatting with you more. Uh, but thank you so much. And I appreciate your time. I didn't, I've enjoyed it a great deal, Mark. And uh, I'm glad to do it again sometime. That does it for this episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor. Text it to a friend with type 1 diabetes right now. That'll show your friend that you support them and also help me get the word out about this podcast. If you feel like you need more support around type 1 diabetes and mental health, I want to invite you to join the Diabetes Psychologist Membership. This is a membership that gives you all the tools, resources, and skills that you need to navigate the emotional burden of type 1 diabetes. We have monthly masterclasses, live Q&As with me, and hot seat coaching as well as a library of resources to help you deal with anything diabetes throws your way. To find out more or to join, go to www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash membership. That's www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash membership. I always love hearing from my listeners, so please feel free to send me a DM on Instagram at thediabetespsychologist or send me an email to mark at thediabetespsychologist.com. And of course, please tune in next Thursday for a brand new episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. Remember, type 1 diabetes is not easy, but you can have an easier time with it. And I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening. For more resources, you can visit www.thediabetespsychologist.com. And be sure to sign up for the email list for access to exclusive content. I'm Dr. Mark Heyman, and tune in next time for the latest episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. Podcast.